The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we are back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we got a really fun show lined up for everyone tonight. If you're catching this show on YouTube, make sure you hit the subscribe button and hit the bell. That way you will be staying up to date with all the uh, interviews and cool stuff that we got coming up. Tonight, we're going to tackle the topic of the paranormal. The paranormal has been a popular topic for many, many years now. And tonight, to talk about that, I am joined by my good pal, Brandon Albis. I met Brandon some years ago, and I've had the good fortune of uh, participating in some paranormal investigations with his group, APRA the American Paranormal Research Association, and their experiences I'll never forget. Brandon is one of the most serious paranormal investigators I've had the pleasure of meeting, and his years of experience and his insights into this field are very valuable, as can be seen in the recent seasons of Ghost Hunters on A&E. He's a great guy. Can't wait to get into this topic with him. So let me just read a little bit from his bio. Brandon Alves is the paranormal technician of the Ghost Hunters team. His twin passions for history and the paranormal led him to establish the American Paranormal Research Association, APRA. Brandon has investigated over 200 public and private locations with APRA, many of which bear historical significance. Investigations have included mental hospitals, prisons, well-known murder sites, cemeteries, and private homes, as well as more famous sites like Alcatraz Island, Preston Castle, and the South Pittsburgh Hospital. As a natural skeptic, Brandon researches every location meticulously before he begins collecting evidence in an effort to make the study of the paranormal as credible as possible. Over the years, he has spoken at historical locations across the United States and has appeared in the New York Post, MTV News, Travel Channel, Discovery Channel, Science Channel, and most recently on Ghost Hunters on the A&E Network. So it's a real pleasure for me to have uh, Brandon Albus on the show tonight. Brandon, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. I really appreciate you taking the time. As I mentioned... I've had the pleasure of uh, going on uh, a few investigations with you in the past, and I've always been impressed at how methodical and critical you are when it comes to gathering evidence. Frank, thanks for having me on, man. It's been a while since we've spoken. I'm really looking forward to this. I've been really excited to see how your career has taken off. You've always been very passionate about the paranormal, and now you get a chance to do it on a show like Ghost Hunters. Tell me, what is the biggest difference going from your own paranormal group to this full-fledged production that is uh, Ghost Hunters? Oh, man, it's been a whirlwind. You know, it's been crazy. You know, I, uh, 
was very lucky, you know, founding APRA in 2006 and doing that for, you know, many number of years. And I get a call one day in 2000, late 2018, early 2019 uh, from Pilgrim Media Group, who produced the original Ghost Hunters with Jason and Grant and Taps. And they reached out and wanted to speak to me about a new show. And that, it's funny because at the time I didn't know it was Ghost Hunters. And you know me, Frank, I've done some TV stuff over the years. It was never really my goal with the paranormal. It was always more about finding answers and, you know, trying to implement the scientific method. Uh, but I got the call from Pilgrim and I went out and talked with them and ended up being on the a version of Ghost Hunters, which was really great. And what was, you know, extra special about that was it was a you know, new version of Ghost Hunters. So it wasn't TAPS. You have Grant there. Uh, but they really wanted to take some of the methodology, the standards and protocol that I implemented with APRA and really put it into the new version. So I was very lucky to have that. So it was kind of taking that mindset from APRA uh, to this you know, vast scale. I mean, having the might of A&E behind us in Pilgrim and having such amazing opportunities to go to these heavily vetted locations and working on these amazing you know, cases was uh, something I'll never forget. That's for sure. One of the things that I noticed watching uh, these new episodes of uh, Ghost Hunters, it looks like the equipment has changed. I mean, it looks a lot more um, scientific, I guess would be the word. Absolutely, absolutely. And one thing that we did with the new version of Ghost Hunters is instead of using a lot of the tech that's made specifically for the paranormal, uh, or what I call garage tech, we implemented devices from other industries into our research. And the reason we did that, not only because we can gather more data, but that information, that data, and that evidence can be looked at by a third party, uh, a technical you know, industry that can really tell us exactly what the data is we're collecting. And that's something that we heavily implemented into the new ghost hunters. And that's why you see the difference in the, uh, you know, the equipment and the way we use the equipment because we had these third-party experts that could really help us understand it if we're dealing with something natural or something we can't quite explain. On the note of equipment and how much better the equipment is nowadays because uh, you're using uh, more uh, scientific equipment to get readings and uh, establish communication, do you find that it's that much more reliable? Absolutely. For instance... Uh, we started using a lot of data loggers and ghost hunters, which is something that you didn't see a lot. Uh, you know, well, you never really saw on the shows, but it's something you didn't see a lot in research. Period is the fact that we're trying to correlate environmental conditions to a timestamp and to phenomena that we believe to be paranormal. And once we have that information, we have that data. We can go to uh, an expert, say a scientist, an engineer, a medical doctor, whatever it may be, whatever device that might be and say, hey, look, this is the data we collected at this exact moment. It correlates with this. Is this a natural phenomenon? Have you seen this before? So, I mean, using the data loggers has been something that's been fantastic. Uh, we also implemented the EMCCD camera, which is an electron multiplying camera, which is typically used in the, the digital imaging scientific community to record photon events. And photon events are not typically seen by the human eye. And we implemented that into locations where people were seeing full-bodied apparitions and shadow figures and all these different things. And we had some amazing results with that device that correlated with environmental changes at the exact same time. So once we start to do that, now we're starting to talk real science and we're starting to talk factual data and empirical evidence. And that's been very exciting for us. So it's far more reliable, not only in the sense of 
trying to further this type of research. But I, again, it goes back to the point that we're taking this information, this data, and having it analyzed by an expert from that field. Brandon, you've investigated over 200 locations and, you know, these span everything from abandoned hospitals, asylums, prisons, cemeteries, um, a lot of historical locations as well, and uh, private residences. Is there any one location that you find that it's usually more active than others? You know, it's tough because it's, you know, it's always different with locations. Obviously, history plays a major part into any of the you know phenomena that we perceive to be paranormal or supernatural. Uh, but I think there's always what we call the elements of a haunting. There's the specific type of history, specific type of environmental conditions that are associated with these places that have a lot of activity. And again, that varies. That could be an old Victorian house. It could be an abandoned mental hospital. It could be a brand new apartment building. It, it all depends, you know? Uh, but I think that the environmental conditions, the geographical location has a lot to do with it. And what that means right now, we don't quite understand, but, but by trying to implement science and going out there and trying to find data and empirical evidence, I think that's going to take us to that next level of understanding why some of these locations are more active than others. As far as locations, this is probably going to be a difficult question to answer, but do you have a favorite one? Oh, man, I'd have to say the RMS Queen Mary. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's a location that I've collected so much data at, um, some of the most significant audio data, the most significant visual data I've ever collected, and a location over almost a decade that continued to produce results, consistent results. So I'd have to say the RMS Queen Mary, that's for sure. Is there a location that you haven't investigated yet that you definitely want to be sure you visit? I would love to do the Tower of London in some capacity. You know, that would be a, a huge feat. But, uh, man, I would love to get into the Tower of London. I think it has that formula. I think it has all the elements of a haunting. I think it has the makings of a perfect haunted location. And that's a location hopefully in my lifetime I can get to. Yeah, for the folks that are not familiar with the Tower of London, definitely give it a Google. It's some grim, grim history. I got a chance to visit and did the little tourist tour, you know, like the little guided tour. Um, it's crazy how much happened in such a small, <laughs> you know, area. Uh, so I, I can totally understand why that would be a, a, a location that you would want to visit. When we talk about locations, one of the, the things that I get asked is uh, how can a church be haunted? You know, uh, churches are generally regarded as, you know, these very kind of positive spiritual places. But over the years, I've heard many people go investigate churches and apparently there is paranormal activity there. Are we uh, to assume that not all paranormal activity is negative as the connotation tends to be? You're exactly right. You know, you see a lot of the shows that are out there now and a lot of the, you know, paranormal investigators that jump to the conclusion that all activity or perceived paranormal phenomena is negative in some way. And that's definitely not the case. I think more times than not, it's really not negative. There could be a positive experience within it. We think about the idea that energy is neither created nor destroyed. You know, our body is made up of energy. Our, our brains fire off neurons right now. So where does that energy go when we die? Does it retain consciousness? 
that's the big question. So say if someone passes on, they do retain consciousness and that energy is still alive in some way. If they enjoyed going to a place such as a church, why wouldn't they visit that in death? And that's the big question. So I think a lot of the times that you have a lot more positivity uh, out there than is portrayed in a lot of the shows and a lot of the research nowadays. Are you yourself a, a spiritual person? Do you practice any type of uh, protection when going to some of these places? You know, I, I know a lot of people will pray before they go in and when they come out or they will do their own type of uh, cleansing before beginning an investigation. Do you have any uh, type of practice? You know, not to that extent per se, but, you know, after 200 investigations, a lot of which I can say there was really no haunting or there really was no phenomena taking place. You know, I've been very lucky to investigate some uh, very strange locations, some of which had activity. Uh, but out of all those locations, I would probably say maybe 10 to 15 of them are actually active and haunted. But going into a location, I always remain grounded. Um, I think logically, I try and you know, find the natural explanation first. And I always have to remember that if we're dealing with what we think we're dealing with, these are disembodied spirits or disembodied people. So I treat them as such. And I go in and just remember that I have more power in that situation than what we might believe to be there does. And that's something that, you know, helps me and helps me again, remain grounded and, you know, trying to find that natural explanation first and sticking to the scientific principle as much as possible. I know that there was one episode, and, and I have it in my notes, where people were seeing a shadow figure, but it didn't quite look human. Is it possible that some of these entities are not human? That's very possible. Uh, you know, one thing that we have to take into account and think about is the possibility of interdimensional activity right? You think of things like transverse validity and dimensions intersecting at certain points. Maybe it's something that's beyond Earth. You know, maybe it is something that was not human at one point that was always an entity in its own form. And that's something we have to take into account because we can't go in with a preconceived notion and a bias. If we do that, we're not really investigating the proper way. So absolutely, we have to always look at all possibilities and you never know. It could be something interdimensional. could be something that's very well has never been of the flesh. And that's something we always have to take into account. When I wrote that question, I was uh, thinking back to my first experience at Linda Vista Hospital, a place that I know you're also quite familiar with. I remember that we were walking in the, in the third floor, and me and a friend, and we had just a consumer-grade video camera and there were two three other people in the vicinity you know just like walking and talking amongst ourselves and when i went back home i started kind of going through through the sd card and just listening to the different clips and out of nowhere there was this the best way i can describe it it's a roar a roar that wasn't audible to our ears and uh, i did a, an interview with rich from bhpp uh, Boyle Heights Paranormal Project, and we discussed this recording. And I remember when I played that for Rich, he said that that wasn't the first time that he had heard that. And it just made me think, whatever it was, it did not sound like uh, the voice of somebody, you know? It's refreshing that people are more seriously considering the, the possibilities, as you mentioned, of just dimensions and quite possibly having entities that can travel across these dimensions 
I think uh, that's kind of the direction we should be heading since a lot of this phenomena lies just outside of the scope of our senses, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, funny enough that you mentioned that, Frank, because I had an experience in Linda Vista that's very similar to that. You know, that's something that I encountered audibly at one point. And that location was wild. I mean, there were so many different types of stuff going on there that it's just, it was hard to keep track of at certain points. But yeah, no, I think that there's a huge possibility that in some way there's this cross section between different dimensions that could bleed through in some way. How that happens, is it happening? Who knows? But it's a, you know, it's a strong possibility and a good theory. And I think Linda Vista had some of that going on for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That place uh, uh, definitely left a mark on me. I'm always left speechless uh, with some of the experiences that I had there that Put it this way, I walked into Linda Vista somewhat of a skeptic, <laughs> and I walked out a completely different person. Now, this question may sound a bit silly, but it's based on personal experience, right? A few years ago, I got a chance to travel to Germany, and I was in Bonn, and it's right there on the Rhine River, and we went on a hike, and on this hike, we came across this abandoned, boarded-up, fenced up, um, looked like a bed and breakfast. It was a fairly big place, and we found a, a spot where we could kind of sneak in, and we went inside, and it had huge signs to keep out because of the place was falling apart. I think one of the signs said that the floor was, if you stepped on it, you know, you risk falling through. So I was on, you know, near the door, and I just took a few steps in, and sure enough, there was like a huge gaping hole in the middle of this vacant mm -hmm room and i just took out my my iphone you know and i remember uh because i didn't want to <laughs> get any like crazy roaming charges i had my phone set on uh airplane mode so i just flipped on the uh voice recorder and started doing like an evp session you know and i'm not i'm not a paranormal investigator really you know i don't consider myself that not even a hobbyist i've just been fortunate enough to uh I've been on investigations with people like you and I see how you go about doing things. So I started just asking questions. And when we got back to the place where we were staying at, same thing, you know, I just put on my headphones and started listening. And I was asking my questions, you know, in English. I don't know German. But what was interesting was that at the very end of my questions, and there were only like, you know, five or six, I just said, well, you know, thank you. And I kid you not, at the end of this recording, you hear a very, like, breathy, you're welcome. That surprised me because you would think, I guess, that if you're in a particular country, the EVPs would come <laughs> in the corresponding language. But have you ever had that happen where you've, you've been investigating a place and maybe you pick up a language that it's nothing that you would find there? No, but, you know, funny enough, I've had something, you know, on the reverse side, on the flip side happen where I was investigating the Andres Pico Adobe uh, in San Fernando for many years. Uh, and first couple times we investigated the location, we would go in, conduct EVP sessions with some amazing audio equipment, condenser microphones, ribbon microphones, ran into a tube preamp out of a preamp into an interface and into a DAW recording software. And we had this amazing setup, some of the cleanest audio we've ever used, a lot of audio data, high bit rates. And 
we would go in and ask questions in English and never got any responses. And this place has ghost stories going back to the 1920s and 30s. So we were really trying to find evidence that would suggest that these stories were real. The next time we came into the location, we brought in a translator. Uh, we brought in a woman that spoke Spanish. And we had her start asking all the questions. We also had a man come into the building that spoke fluent Spanish as well. And we had some of the best EVP we've ever collected that was responding perfectly in Spanish, some of which was from a young-sounding little girl or a little boy around the age of maybe eight years old, it sounds like. So we had some absolutely amazing results in the location, uh, only when we brought in someone that spoke fluent Spanish, which, you know, if you think about the time uh, and the people that lived in that location and died in that location... Um, that's what they would have spoke. And that's when we had results is when we started to speak the uh, native language. And that, that's what worked for us in that situation. That's pretty wild. Now, you mentioned uh, hearing the voice of a child. And a lot of people believe that those are trickster entities or things of that nature. From your experience, have you ever had anything happen that made you think that that would be the case or you think that these are unfortunately the uh, spirits of young children that passed away too early well you know i've only collected the voice of, of young children a few times i think maybe three times four times in total uh in the past 17 years um you know i hear a lot of stories about you know the possibility of it could be a negative entity mimicking a child to lure people in or try and find a comfort level Um, it sounds great for a horror film. It sounds great for television. I haven't experienced that myself. Uh, in the locations I actually did record EVP of, you know, unfortunately younger children, there's a history associated to back up that those children did die in these locations. So it's, it, uh, it's a tough one, but it's not something I've experienced personally. As I was saying earlier, you're a very methodical researcher. What are your thoughts on the more off-the-cuff Um, methods of uh, investigating you know there's a lot of people that will take a Ouija board to an investigation or will try to uh, entice or provoke the entities that they believe are in this particular location do you have any thoughts on that style of investigation well I think anytime you bring in disrespect into a situation like that it's completely unethical uh, and something that shouldn't be done Because if we look at the theory of what we believe to be, you know, disembodied people, you know, people that have retained consciousness after death, you shouldn't go into someone's house or someone's residence or place where they reside and start to disrespect them. I think that's completely unethical and something that shouldn't be done. But as far as things like Ouija boards and, say, ITC devices and some of the garage tech that's out there, obviously we're in a field that's not exactly a science. A lot of people would call it a pseudoscience. So there's really no right or wrong way to do it, especially depending on what your ultimate goal is with investigating the paranormal. But if we ever want to be taken seriously in this field, we have to implement scientific principle. We have to implement ethics, standards, protocol, uh, and methodology. And that's something that we have to bring into this field if we ever want to be taken seriously. I talk a lot about different types of research and scientific research. You have the exploration of space, You have the exploration of the ocean. I think the last final frontier and the, the next big great exploration is life after death. We have to start to implement scientific principle and techniques used by 
scientific studies in order to be taken seriously. And that's something I implement into my research and something I advocate for. And I hope that one day a majority of this field and people that take this seriously will implement that scientific principle as well. I think uh, that should be definitely the goal because uh, I believe that there is definitely more than meets the eye, no pun intended. And it's something that should be given a serious look. I think that humanity as a whole could benefit of just knowing a little more of this mystery. Now, a lot is said about haunted locations, but I wanted to ask you, is it possible for an individual to be haunted? I believe that. Yeah, I do. I mean, there's been a lot of cases we worked over the years. Actually, one we did on Ghost Hunters in season one, where we went to a house where this woman was having these very traumatic types of activity and hauntings going on in her location, in her house, to the point she moved out of the location, right? And we went in to investigate. We go in, we set up all of our equipments, we you know, run an entire investigation, absolutely nothing happens. Night two, we come back, we bring her back to the house and things just go bonkers, completely crazy. So I think there are people in some way that do have, I don't know if you want to call it an attachment or have some type of energy associated with them that attracts entities or maybe they put off that energy themselves. I'm not quite sure, but we actually have documented that and we actually did that in season one of Ghost Hunters. My next question kind of is related to that. I've been on my share of investigations and I've been in some investigations where like absolutely nothing happens. And I've been on investigations where I'm taking a back by what's going on. Do you think that there is a particular type of person that is more prone to experiencing paranormal activity? I do. I do. And I, I think that we've, we've witnessed that in the past with people going into a location and collecting more evidence than other people. And it's not because they're doing something different per se than the others. It's just that there's an attraction there. Um, maybe their beacon's a bit brighter than others. You know, there's a light associated with that in some way. But we've seen it in the past. And, you know, how that happens, why it happens, I'm not quite sure. But I definitely think that there is something to it. I guess that would explain a little bit of uh, people who have psychic abilities. It sounds like what you're describing a bit, right? Yeah, absolutely. I do believe that there are people out there that do have abilities and it can aid in investigations and research. And sometimes there's people out there that have those abilities that just don't quite know they have them and have experiences on a regular basis. Now, you produce everything from short form web content to full length documentaries. Why did you decide to write this book that's going to be coming out soon? Uh, the title is Elements of a Haunting, Connecting History with Science to Uncover the Greatest Ghost Stories Ever Told. Was this just what you felt was the natural progression for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was, you know, definitely part of the natural progression, but it's also the perfect format to get 17 years worth of work out there in a way that's going to be, I think, a bit more compelling than a visual uh, format. The visual format's always great. It's a lot of fun to watch. You can do a lot with it, but you can add a lot more research and a lot more information into a book. And that's something that with Mustafa Gadalari and I, we wrote this book. We signed a publishing deal with Llewellyn Worldwide. The book's going to be out on January 8th. 
we've been actually very lucky that we've been number one in the new release in Ghosts and Hauntings category on Amazon for quite some time now, which has been really fantastic. But this book was a way for us to implement everything we've been talking about in this conversation, implementing scientific principle, implementing a set of ethics, standards, protocols, and methodology that'll hopefully push this field forward and really help us be taken seriously. So taking all that information we've had for 17 years and putting it into this format has been something that's been absolutely amazing. In the book, you cover six locations. You obviously visited way more than that while filming uh, Ghost Hunters. Why did you narrow it down to those six? You know, we narrowed it down to those locations because I think that was the perfect way to show the implementation of these ethics standards and protocol and methodology. All of these ideas and this research we've conducted, those locations really had results that worked in that favor. Not only are we implementing these amazing different techniques, we also are implementing a classification system for ghosts and hauntings, which is really something that's not been done before. You know, working with Dr. Clore for so long, this amazing world-renowned scientist, he always said, you know, in order for us to be taken seriously in this field to be taken seriously, we have to classify the phenomena. You don't go to a zoo and say you saw a bunch of animals. You go to a zoo and say you saw lions and tigers and elephants. So we had to do that. And we implemented that into this book and into these cases that you're going to see. So, for instance, one of the locations we talk about is the Athenaeum in Indianapolis. Amazing location. It was a German heritage center uh, for a long time. And it's now this amazing, you know, meeting place for people. And there's been so many different types of reports over the years, but mainly seeing this woman in gray and in white. And we go in and we capture some amazing environmental changes, some amazing EVP, and we are able to actually classify that as a gray lady phenomena. And that coincides not only with you know, hundreds of years worth of history associated with gray ladies in this specific type of entity. But that specific history lines up perfectly with what happened at the Athenaeum over a hundred years ago. So that's, you know, one location that's in the book that really shows you this methodology, this protocol, and that classification system all coming together and really, you know, showing the way we do our research and from a, you know, a scientific principle and a scientific point of view. And it really all comes together and makes it a lot more credible. I was watching that episode, and um, I found really interesting that you guys use live music to elicit a response, and it worked. Can you tell me a little bit about the logic behind that? You know, being that so many people over the years went to the Athenaeum to you know, enjoy themselves, have the time in their lives, really being in a jovial situation, we wanted to recreate that environment to try and possibly draw in the entities that are there. And that's something we did successfully. We brought in this string quartet. They came up, played music from the time period from German composers, by the way, which is really funny. And things started to happen during and shortly after. So our idea and you know the, the concept behind that was to recreate that environment to bring back that atmosphere that was once enjoyable for these people that love this place so dearly. And if they're back visiting this location, maybe that's going to incite some type of response. And it was actually very successful. When I was um, watching that, it reminded me of, of something that happened when I was uh, younger. 
it didn't happen to me, but I saw the uh, the individual that had the experience shortly after, and uh, it was a family friend who was an electrician. And at the time, my my dad was working here in L.A. and the company that he worked for had acquired a building two doors over. And this building was, you know, it, it was a massive building, you know, for LA it was three stories and, you know, it, it had a bit of a creepy vibe. So before anybody could move in, there was quite a bit of electrical work and, you know, phone lines that needed to get connected and, and whatnot. So this family friend who did that for a living was hired. And I remember that we were in the building where um, everybody was still working out before they began to move things over to this other building. And our friend came in just like running and just winded and the whole like color drained from his face. You could literally the, the definition of like someone that had just seen a ghost, right? And he started saying once he calm down that he was working in the basement so remember i said that this was like three stories so it was three three floors and a basement and he said that he was down there just you know connecting the phone lines when all of a sudden he heard like what sounded like opera music and he thought that maybe like there was a maybe a handyman or something up in the third floor so he went up there to check, and as he was going up the flights of stairs, the, the music would stop. So he got to the third floor, and there was nothing. So he went back downstairs and kept working in the basement, and then the music came back on. And, you know, again, he started going up the stairs, and then the music would stop. And I guess that happened a third time. And then the third time, he's says that he just got the strangest vibe like he shouldn't be there and that's when he ran out of the building so my question is when we hear something like that where like music is being played in in a place where there's no electricity by the way are we just hearing what people call residual energy or you know i'm not trying to be funny but is it like a ghost band uh, how would you explain something like that you know, I think that, you know, the best term for it would be residual energy. You know, it's like a tape being played over and over and over. You know, you think about tape, it's magnetic makeup. Somehow, in some way, there's been reports for so many years, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years of these situations, these historical events somehow imprinting itself on the environment and it's replaying itself in certain types of environmental conditions. How that works, I'm not sure. Is that what's happening? I'm not sure. But it would have to be some kind of residual energy in some way. Um, how, how that's happening, we're not quite sure yet, but it's definitely something that we try to look into within our research. One of the locations that you visited was um, Madison Seminary. And something that caught my attention was that early on in the episode, Grant Wilson says that uh, paranormal investigations have become very popular in recent years. And there is a large number of amateur investigators out there now. And uh, a lot of them, and I have to agree, a lot of them don't know what they're getting into. And he said something that caught my attention. He said they confuse ghost hunting slash having their own experience with paranormal investigation. What is the difference and what are the risks? 
I, you know, I always refer to that term as paratourism. You know what I mean? People that watch the shows, they read the books, they see the movies, they want to go out and have that experience for themselves. Almost thrill-seeking in a way, right? They want to put themselves in that environment. They don't understand the amount of time and effort and dedication that really goes into trying to find answers. You don't just show up to a location for an hour, just like a TV show, and have all these fantastical things happen. You know, paranormal research is when you dedicate your life, dedicate significant periods of time, make sacrifices to go out there and really try and find true answers. And that's something that I completely agree with uh, with Grant and something that him and I talked about many times. Uh, but yeah, I think the difference is what we call paratourism, you know, something Mustafa and I call paratourism, and then you have paranormal investigation or paranormal research where people are really dedicating resources, life, time, everything they have to try and find real answers and provide that information to other people instead of going to a location for a night and trying to have these experiences that they witnessed through media. Now, in that same location, Madison Seminary, you and another investigator, uh, Rachel, became visibly and physically ill. And a third investigator, Brian, he became emotionally agitated. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were feeling and what are your thoughts? Are you reacting to the location or are you reacting to a particular entity that may have been present at that time? You know, all I can say is that, you know, it was a very intense situation, right? So after we had our run, we're down there investigating for, you know, well over an hour in this one small basement area. And we start to do interviews after those investigations where we stand there with a cameraman and a producer and the producer just kind of recaps, you know, what happened, right? So, so can you tell me a little bit more about what just happened here, here, and here? We're standing there in this exact spot we just investigated when all of a sudden a rock is thrown from one of the dark areas of the basement at me. It goes past our producer flies right in front of me lands you hear it land it's actually you know on the show but then as soon as that happens the data logger that we have starts to show environmental changes not only did the temperature start to change drastically in that location but there was pressure changes as well which is very interesting and then moments after those pressure changes and temperature changes the motion detector in that room where that rock was being thrown from actually is triggered and goes off. So am I reacting to a possible entity that was there? I'm not quite sure, but there was massive environmental changes with this rock being thrown with the situation happening right before us. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that there was these environmental changes. And then I start to have this, you know, bodily reaction to what was happening. Was it something natural in the environment that was changing that made me feel that way? I don't know, but I definitely think it's too much of a coincidence to ignore that you have this rock being thrown from a room. It didn't fall from the ceiling. It didn't come from you know, a piece of peeling paint or anything like that. And then right after that, moments after, you have these environmental changes with pressure and temperature and then a motion detector going off. And that's that correlation we're always looking for in those instances. It's one thing for me to stand there and say, oh, I'm feeling this. That's just a personal experience. I can convey that as much as I want to a camera, to a situation. But when you have data happening where there's environmental changes happening 
and a motion detector going off, and those two separate devices are correlating together, that's when it starts to become actual investigation and actual research. So I'm not exactly sure what was affecting me, but I think there was too much going on at once to ignore exactly you know, the situation. That was definitely an intense moment. Basically, you could see it in your face at the time as it was happening. And I've only seen it happen a few times, you know, during an investigation, a person will begin to express some discomfort or interestingly enough, they'll, they'll say that they'll be overwhelmed by thoughts that don't even feel like they're their own. And that was kind of like the vibe that I got when I saw Brian's reaction to what was happening there. Um, do you think that that is a danger that comes with investigating? Or do you think it's something that people can somehow be prepared for and maybe avoid? Well, there's definitely dangers involved in investigating. I mean, not only from you know a standpoint of natural dangers from you know structural problems, things like that, but you know there can be times where things happen like that that can affect yourself and affect your mood, affect the way you're conducting yourself in that situation. So it's definitely a danger, and that's one thing people have to take into account when they put themselves in these situations. It can be dangerous. There can be situations and times that can affect you physically and personally, emotionally. So it's definitely a danger and something that has to be taken into account if they, you know, if you want to get out and investigate these types of phenomena. On that note of danger, there's another episode um, in the season where you guys visit a place called uh, Landos Mohican Castle. And um, this one caught my attention because there seems to be a theme of fire with the location. And there was a moment where some of the investigators could smell gas. But what I found a bit scary was when you and Mustafa went into a room and apparently the, the fireplace was just cranked and the heater was full blast. Can you tell me a little bit about what was happening there? Yeah, you know, this location, Landall's Meeting Castle, not only has a history with fire with the structure that's currently there now, but... 100 years prior, there was a, a church that stood right in that same exact spot in the cemetery that was, you know, the graveyard that was in front of that church is still there on the property of Landalls, and that place burned to the ground. So you have this very strange history of multiple structures, you know, being engulfed in flames, some of which burned down, and then you have situations where Brian, Rochelle, and Grant go into the restaurant and the pilot lights out, all of a sudden you start to smell a bunch of gas. It's a dangerous situation. And then Mustafa and I go up into one of the suites upstairs. And not only is this fireplace full blast, you have a, a heater, a wall-mounted heater that is on full blast as well. It's, it's tough to think that the people that own the place and the people that work there would want to you know, pull a stunt like that and put their own location in danger just to try and trick a few people. But it's one thing that we have to take into account is the fact that there's this history of fire in this location. And all of a sudden you start to have these crazy experiences like that. And it's not the first time the people that own this building and the people that work there have experienced similar things. So exactly how that took place, I'm not sure, but I definitely find it to be you know, very coincidental. Do you think that the entities were trying to cause harm 
with this, uh, I mean, uh, I would say poltergeist activity. Am I correct using that term, first of all? And do you, do you feel that there could be entities that do want to cause harm? I do think there are entities out there that do want to cause, you know, mischief and harm. I think that is a thing. You know, I, you know, I think Peter James always said, as in life, as in death. And that's something I believe as well. If you were kind of mischievous and kind of angry in life, you would be that way in death. So it's very possible that there's someone associated with Landall's in that property that maybe wants to, you know, show, you know, that anger or aggression in a certain way. Or maybe it could be an entity just showing, hey, look, these are the dangers. Make sure that you're keeping an eye on these types of things because this place has a very specific history with fire. So be careful. Keep an eye on these things and make sure you're, you know, uh, being aware of what can happen to the building. So, I mean, it could go, you know, multiple ways, but there's definitely entities out there that, you know, do want to cause harm. Uh, you know, it's very rare. It doesn't happen much, but I definitely think that it is something that happens. One location that I want to make sure I ask you about before we run out of time is uh, Fort Stanton. This place was definitely a trip. Uh, if people haven't seen that episode, definitely check it out. It's a place full of history. And why don't you tell me a little bit about what happened at Fort Stanton? I mean, Fort Stanton's amazing. Uh, you know, you think about a location that has layers upon layers upon layers of history. Everything from a location that was uh, part of the Apache Wars to the Lincoln County Wars. Billy the Kid was locked up in Fort Stanton at one point. It was a World War II a German camp where they housed uh, Germans during World War II. This place has so much history. It is unbelievable. It, it was the first federal tuberculosis hospital. I mean, it's just unreal how much happened in this location. But, uh, you know, we had some of the most credible eyewitnesses we've ever worked with. I mean, these are people that work for the the Department of New Mexico, you know, the state parks. These people are very regulated and very straight up people that have been having these unbelievable experiences for so many years. And we came in and this is actually the first place we introduced the EMCCD camera, the electron multiplying camera, and had some amazing, amazing results in this former federal tuberculosis hospital. And man, what a location, what great evidence and a place I hope to get back to here in the next year or so. It's just unbelievable. One of the things that really I found fascinating was uh, you yourself picked up some really incredible evidence using this electron multiplying camera. I'm not even going to pretend to know what all that means, but I will only assume that it's a very sophisticated piece of equipment outside of my scope of uh, operation. But why don't you tell me a little bit about that piece of evidence you caught? Because it was definitely a very solid piece of footage you got there. This camera is, you know, mainly used by the digital imaging scientific community to record single photon events. And the reason we use this camera and the reason we're looking for photon events is because we went to our consultants, we talked to people that are not paranormal investigators. These are professionals from technical industries that are not in our world, right? They're not trying to go out and find entities or try and find the supernatural. And I asked one of my consultants, I said, if ghosts are real and they are manifesting, from your scientific opinion, how would that happen? And they said, I think it possibly would be photon events. And so we got this very specific piece of equipment. We set it in the hallway of this federal tuberculosis hospital where one of these eyewitnesses, again, someone that works for the state parks of New Mexico, was seeing this woman, a nurse, almost 
on a daily basis. He, he was so afraid to go in this building because he was seeing this woman in the building so often that he didn't want to go in. And so we took the camera in, we shot it down one of the, one of the uh, hallways, and lo and behold, the silhouette, the figure of a woman peeks out, looks down the hallway right at us, and we capture it on this very specialized piece of equipment. And when we showed it to our eyewitness, he said, that's exactly what I've been seeing for years. This is unbelievable because this is exactly what I've seen. And when we took it to our scientific consultant, what made it so amazing was the fact that this camera is designed to record photon events, which are not typically seen by the human eye. Photon events are light events that take place, right? And this image, whatever it may be, showed up in the negative range of what this camera is supposed to collect. So that made it even more unbelievable in the fact that there's no way we could fake it. You know what I mean? There's no way, if we wanted to go in there and try and, you know, pull the wool over someone's eyes or try and, you know, make something look like an entity or, you know, a supernatural being, there's no way we can do it. And this camera collected that image. It was backed up by our eyewitness. And it's, I think, something that's probably going to go down in history because it was such a significant step forward and a breakthrough for this field. Now, I received a, a message from a friend of mine, and I feel like you are probably more qualified than I am at answering her question. She's lost, uh, you know, family members, including her dog in recent times. And when her dog had to be put to sleep, she says that something uh, strange happened in the way that she had some Christmas lights on and she was filming the, her final moments with her companion animal. And when she went to look at the video after the fact, she said that she noticed that the Christmas lights were blinking and, you know, these Christmas lights are not the blinking kind. And she was just wondering because she has had uh, experiences where she captured orbs with the same camera. Can a loved one that has passed on come and visit? And can they manifest themselves in this way? Absolutely. You know, I, I do believe that loved ones can visit. And I think that they manifest themselves in, you know, many different ways. You know, with this situation, with the Christmas lights uh, blinking like that, it could have been a very easy way for someone to try and get her attention to say, hey, look, I'm here. I'm still around. Uh, you know, be aware. So I think that there's a lot of different ways that this type of activity and visitation can come through. And a lot of times it's through electronic devices like that or, you know, a lot of times that there's disturbances with flickering lights or things turning on and off. So, you know, it is very possible that what she experienced was someone showing up to say, hey, everything's going to be okay. We're still around and don't forget us. It's definitely uh, a sign of reassurance. And, you know, she followed that because I asked her, you know, have you had, you know, your mom manifest in other ways? And she quickly shared a Another instance where she visited the uh, Rocky Mountain National Park where uh, they laid her ashes. And she says that when uh, she got home after visiting, she found in her bag, in a zip pocket in her bag, two shiny stones that she says that there's no way she could have put them there. You know, she's not the type to be picking up things off the ground or anything like that. And she believes that that was uh, her mom. Again, 
manifesting and communicating that she was nearby. You know, it's not very common, but I've heard a lot of stories over the years, especially when it comes to seeing signs from loved ones like that. You know, I, I know people that have had photos come out of nowhere, coins, things like that just show up completely out of nowhere. Uh, so, you know, it's a very strong possibility. It's just a way of communication to say, hey, look, I'm still around and, you know, don't lose sight of that. So, it, you know, it's something I've heard of many times, and I think it's definitely a possibility. Brandon, the book is called Elements of a Haunting, Connecting History with Science to Uncover the Greatest Ghost Stories Ever Told. It's already at the top of the Amazon pre-order list, and that's awesome. Congratulations. When can people get a hold of this book? Well, it's now available for pre-order. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can go right through our publisher, Llewellyn Worldwide. But the physical copies will be you know, worldwide you know, starting January 8th, 2022, so not too far away. But pre-orders are now available. They're out there. You can go to Amazon.com, search for the book, Barnes & Noble, or just go to my website at brandonjalvis.com and there's a direct link right there. There's an event coming up in a few months in December uh, where you and Mustafa are going to be uh, there in person. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? What's going down and uh, where can people get tickets and all that good stuff? Yeah, you know, Mustafa and I are going to be in Texas. Uh, it's going to be an amazing location. Very cool old haunted hotel. Mustafa has been there before. Had some amazing experiences. I cannot wait to get out there. Uh, you can find tickets, again, through my website, brandonjalvis.com, or Flumeri Productions. Flumeri Productions, amazing. Ray runs the company. He does amazing events. You can find him on Facebook, Flumeri Productions, uh, or you can just go to my website. And I you know, cannot wait to get out there and meet everybody and investigate this beautiful piece of history. Thanks so much, Brandon, for taking the time to join us tonight and go down this uh, strange and mysterious path that is the the paranormal. And honestly, I... I couldn't think of a better person to talk about it than with someone like you that has had uh, years of experience and, like I said, whose methods I respect and I can assure people that all the evidence that you have presented over the years has been some of the best stuff I've heard and seen. And I wish you continued success in all you do. Frank, great talking to you. It's been a while, man. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was Brandon Albus of A&E's Ghost Hunters. Definitely check out the episodes. Uh, I really enjoy watching all the different locations they visited and seeing them at work. Uh, some really cool stuff. If you want to learn more about Brandon, you can always visit his website. That's Brandon J, the letter J, brandonjalvis.com. And definitely pre-order his book, co-author with Mustafa Gatolari, Elements of a Haunting Connecting history with science to uncover the greatest ghost stories ever told. It sounds like a great read. I can't wait to get my copy and have Brandon back again and talk about some of these locations that they covered in the book. As always, don't forget to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at WOTR Radio. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash WOTR Radio. Make sure you click the bell. To stay up to date with all our interviews and uh, leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. Have you had your own paranormal experience? I would love to hear about it. You can leave it in the comments and you can also check out the website, WOTRradio.com. That being said, take care, be safe, God bless, don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Until then, bye bye.
West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.